and welcome to Sound of the Moment. I'm your host, Pat Cleaver, and this is the bi-weekly show featuring conversations with musicians about jazz, music, and more. I release new episodes every second Monday. Please subscribe to the show wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. If you want to be in touch with me, you can do that via Twitter at Pat Cleaver. You can like the Sound of the Moment page on Facebook, or you can email me at pat at soundofthemoment.com. I plan to keep the show free to listen to and download, but if you feel like supporting me and helping cover the costs of production and hosting, you can make monthly or one-off donations at patreon.com slash soundofthemoment. Many thanks to those of you who already do that. This is episode number 32 for the 21st of January 2019. My guest is trumpeter Guidon Nunes Vas. He has a new quartet album entitled There's No End. And before our conversation, I'll play you a track from it. This is called Yesterday's Dreams and it features guest vocalist Denise Janner. Thank you. 
trumpeter Gidon Nunesvas is my guest today. Gidon, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Pat, for having me. Uh, I always like to begin by asking my guests to introduce themselves a bit, tell me and the people listening a bit about who you are, what you do, your background, where you come from, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So um, I'm a trumpet player I'm living in Amsterdam. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm born in Amsterdam and I studied here. And um, I'm involved in the, the music scene in Amsterdam and the Netherlands, uh, mostly, and a fair amount of traveling. And um, I, besides my own projects, uh, I'm doing a lot of freelance work, mm -hmm. and I enjoy playing various styles. And uh, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Uh, and so, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that I want to talk about, but let's first focus in a bit on uh, on the, the news around you right now, which is you've got a new album that's coming out that's called There's No End. Yeah. Um, I believe... I'm not sure what is the exact release date because I think this is going to be dropping a couple of days before you have your release show. But is that also the official release date or is it uh, January 23rd? Yeah. It's going to be our release concert, the official release date. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that it in theory you should be able to get it in a couple of days from now and you will have heard bits of it, uh, obviously, in this uh, in the show. So, can you tell me a bit? So, it's a, it's a quartet. Can you tell me a bit about the people that join you? That's always the obvious first question when people are, uh, when talking about a record. Um, who are your fellow uh, band members, and and why did you choose those guys? Can you tell me a bit about them? Yeah, the rhythm section is, uh, in my view, very special because I heard them in this combination for the first time in the King with Benjamin Herman. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it's Timothy Bonchet on the piano, yeah. Thomas Paul on the bass, and uh, Joran Fromm on drums. Now they're not um, his uh, regular quartet, mm -hmm. although Th Thomas is uh, in his regular quartet. Yeah, but uh, they were subs one time, and I heard this combination, and I was so impressed by how well it worked mm -hmm. that I had this idea to uh, create something with them because I think they're really special. And uh, Johan, I know since I was 12, so that goes a long way back. And, yeah. Uh, not many people uh, knew that he was uh, uh, a very good jazz drummer as well. Yeah. So I was excited to uh, to do that. Uh, yeah, because he's done, I mean, he does a lot of like uh, great uh, session kind of work and R&B stuff. And yeah. he's an amazing groove drummer and, and he can do pretty much anything you throw at him. Um, but uh, it's true. It's kind of cool to hear him in this context of like, just playing the straight ahead thing. Um, I've done that a few times with him, and it, yeah, it's cool. Absolutely, yeah. And and more people uh, I, I spoke with, they realize how well he is as a jazz drummer. And um, so that's very exciting. And also, uh, there's Denise Jenna on the album, on the four songs. Yeah. She's a vocalist. Yeah. Um, so I, I greatly admire her and uh, what she has done in the past. And... Um, um, yeah, so it was a really um, a joy to work with her and with all the guys. Yeah, that, uh, yeah. Can we can we go? I mean, I'll, I'll get to the to the uh, to the guest. Uh, yeah, to to Denise in a second. But um, can we go a bit more in detail about like uh, about the other guys? I mean, we just talked a bit about Johan, but like um, Timothy obviously is is quite a figure in the in the kind of straight ahead jazz scene and stuff. Like, had you had. Um, experience playing in with him outside of this context before, or what was the? Yeah, um, 
he was playing with me a couple of years ago when I was having my first quintet. Mm-hmm. And on many different occasions, we, we played together as well as in the jam session. So we've been um, crossing roads uh, for many years now. Yeah. Um, and and he's he has developed tremendously uh, as a player. And uh, I'm, I'm just very um, impressed by his development. So I was excited to record that. And uh, Thomas Paul, also we go a long way back. I think he was 15 when I met him for the first time. We played at uh, iJazz oh, as yeah. a festival. Mm-hmm. And um, so I feel with the players, I, I have a history, um, although we didn't play in a regular band before. And I like to work fast with um, projects, so um, there's no safety in uh, in the projects I do. So most of the times it's just like two, re- two rehearsals and then uh, the recording date, which wow, is, okay. uh, of course, scary. Yeah. But I like it because it keeps a certain uh, freshness in the music mm-hmm. and it never uh, is going to be routine. Yeah. So, um, but on the recording day, that's all, of course very, um, it can be stressful sometimes. Yeah. Because we recorded within five hours this session mm-hmm. and um, the vocal tunes within one hour because there was, <laughs> wow. there was no time. There was no, yeah. no time with one hour. Uh, so there was two tracks of most songs and one track of, of one song. Yeah. But I like it because it does something to your um, mindset. Yeah. It's like uh, you have to do it now. And, and I believe in that. It's like the music happens in the moment like life. So that's why a lot of players, they, they like live recording mm-hmm. because it has that spontaneity and um, it has to happen in the moment. And I kind of simulate that with a... With um, recording date, I think. Yeah. In this way. No, that yeah. makes sense. Um, yeah. It's also there's something really old school about that, right? Like uh, now we have the possibility to go in and spend like a month in a recording studio and like chop everything up to death and make like a crazy thing. And it's funny because I've had quite a few conversations with people lately who have, um, by for one reason or another, kind of moved away from that process. Whether it's, I mean, I had Efraim Tuhir on the show and he talked about recording straight to tape. Um, I've had Laura Polens uh, was here a few weeks ago telling me about recording to this like new native DSD format, which is a similar thing where basically they just set up the mics and all in one room and it just happened. Is that a similar thing? Like, did you guys all record in the same room? Was yeah. it like, okay. Yeah, so we recorded in the MCO studio in Hilversum with yeah. uh, Frans de Rond. He's a great engineer. Mm-hmm. So it's an old studio, a lot of wood. And we recorded in one room without headphones and uh, I think if you have a good room with a good acoustic and you have an engineer that really knows how to make you sound well or at, as natural as possible, yeah. so he has to use the right microphones, there's no not a lot of editing necessary. Um, also, I don't want to fix a lot of mistakes because I think it's part of the music, and uh, nowadays we can fix so much that the products we are making sometimes become... Uh, too clean, if yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I don't have to. I don't try to be perfect. Uh, yeah, I play human as human <laughs> as possible. You know. No, that makes and, sense. Uh, I'm, yeah. I I feel like there's a thing. I think I've I've made this comment before on the show, but there's a thing that I'm a bit afraid of in that sense, which is I wonder if audiences are along for the ride with this stuff. Like, I feel like there are so many records out there right now that are being made that are being purposefully 
made too clean, so to speak. And that's almost become an aesthetic in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and that people kind of have somewhat crazy expectations now of what a record and what a live band sounds like versus the reality. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if that's a useful remark, but it, it's something that I always kind of wonder about. No, but see, you're right. And there are um, there's definitely a group of musicians nowadays that is going in a more natural way. And um, I think that's a good thing. Um, yeah, no, sure. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, so you decided to, to bring a guest on to, to sing on the on the record. Can you tell me a bit about her and how you guys met? What yeah. First of all, like, what was it about the idea of, was it specifically just because it was her or was it you knew that you wanted a vocalist for this? And, and if so, what what is it about playing with a singer that appeals to you so much? Mm-hmm. So um, for my own playing, I find a lot of inspiration in vocalists. Mm-hmm. So when I try uh, to play ballads, I, I try to approach it uh, the way a vocalist approaches it. So my concept of uh, using uh, vibrato mm-hmm. or phrasing... Um, lyrics are helpful for phrasing and um, um, for this album we um, we have five instrumentals and, uh, and four tracks are with vocals because I felt it would be nice to uh, to have uh, vocals on there and not all instrumental mm. uh, I wanted to, uh, the album to be um, a bit more accessible and I find folk, vocals um, good for that yeah um, uh, yeah, so we met through a, 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 a common friend. And it's kind of funny because everything happened very uh, spontaneous. I didn't know a year ago that I wanted to record with uh, vocals, but it happened during the year. And um, when I met Denise, we had such um, a click, musical click, and, and what we like about music, what are we aiming for in the music, that I just decided... I think that was like a month before the recording date or, or three weeks. I decided to uh, to ask her to uh, to sing on a couple of songs. Yeah. And um, there's this song, Yesterday's Dreams, which was uh, by Don Sebesky. Mm-hmm. And I heard of, uh, there's a f- uh, version of Freddie Hubbard playing it. And I was so impressed by the melody. And uh, I was looking for other versions and I couldn't find other versions. And mm-hmm. when I heard that melody, I was like, wow, this, this sounds like a melody that has lyrics to it, but it didn't. Okay. So I asked uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Joan Ganny, I asked her to write lyrics. Yeah. And like that, uh, we got the idea to, um, I got the idea to ask Denise to sing that. So create something unique. Yeah. And um, uh, it, it, it felt like that. So... Uh, Cool. Yeah. Can can we speak a bit about the the choice of repertoire on the record? Because yeah. um, it's a it's. I I wonder what like first of all it, there's a lot of ballads. Um, yeah. And I suppose there's a that's a bit of a rite of passage, right, in the jazz world. Like a lot of people like make their ballads album at a certain point. I wouldn't mm-hmm. say that this is your ballads album per se, mm-hmm. because obviously there's more to it than just ballads. But yeah. Um, can you tell me a bit about what the process was like selecting the tunes? Like, mm-hmm. what what is it about the tunes themselves that make you think, "Hey, this is something that I want to put down"? Did yeah. you also have input from the rest of the band on what they want to do? Did Denise come and say, "Hey, I'd like to sing this"? Uh, how did that work? Um, so a year ago, I had this idea to record a quartet album, and I had the title in mind. There's no end. Mm-hmm. 
the reason why I had this title in mind because uh, the first song is by Kenny Dorham and it's entitled No End. Yeah. And he wrote that uh, two days before he passed and he gave a lead sheet to Jimmy Heath. And yeah. uh, Jimmy Heath told me the story. So I felt it would be very special to record this song uh, mm. in a quartet setting for the first time. And uh, during the year, I made a list of the songs I w would like to record because I really like those melodies. Um, and strangely enough, after the recording sessions, like a month later, I realized that all the tracks I, I choose, all the songs I choose, are actually a reflection of the last year. Uh, what happened? Um, personal loss. Um, one of my mentors and uh, a friend, Peter Guidi, yeah. Uh, he passed, and um, he was very involved with actually the process of uh, what I was doing. So whenever I had ideas for the songs I wanted to choose, I was uh, calling Peter and yeah. uh, and discussing it, and he would send me a version of Lazy Afternoon and uh, say to me, well, check out these lyrics, and oh, he yeah. really encouraged me to, um, to play it. And for instance, Embraceable You... We wanted to uh, practice that together. He always asked me, mm. when are you coming over and we're going to play it, you know? And yeah. um, it didn't happen. But I made a promise to him when he was uh, in the last, uh, uh, yeah, the last week of his life, when he was ill, mm -hmm. I promised to dedicate the album to him. Yeah. And um, for me, this album became more of a um, spiritual thing. Yeah. Um, which was, um, yeah, it, it's, it, it hadn't happened before. Mm -hmm. Where in the studio also, we, we weren't nervous because of that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, that's interesting. I mean, I don't, uh, obviously we don't have to dwell on it um, if you don't want to, because it is, it is a painful thing. But I mean, um, I am interested in, in speaking a bit about Peter because yeah. he's obviously a really important figure for... The jazz scene here and yeah. um i i've kind of been waiting for i i have to say it's really sad to me because he was one of the people when i started this podcast i thought peter's one of those people that's gonna have to be a guest because yeah. he's like such a monumental figure and um and i've kind of been waiting since since he passed i've been kind of waiting to see like at what point is there going to be a guest on who i think is the right person to talk about peter with oh, yeah. and i feel like you might be that person like obviously uh my girlfriend Sana was was very involved with him as well. Like yeah. she, he he taught her uh, a lot of what she knows. Um, so yeah, can you tell me a bit about Peter? Like, is it uh, yeah um, about how? I mean, who he was. I don't I don't know that everybody listening to this will be aware of him and all that mm -hmm. stuff and like what what he meant to you. I suppose. I'll uh, first give some uh, background information about him, maybe because uh, so Peter Guidi is a musician who. Uh, grew up the first seven years of his life in Scotland, uh, I believe, and yeah. uh, he had Italian parents from Tuscany. Mm -hmm. They moved back to Tuscany when he was a kid, and um, he um, developed himself in uh, in in Italy uh, as an autodidact. Okay. He would go to clubs in Milan and hear like Eddie Lockjaw play, or, or some uh, Americans would come over, and he yeah. would hang around and ask them questions, and mm -hmm. he. Uh, all his knowledge he gained from real life experience. Yeah. So when he was moving to Amsterdam, 
and they asked him to show his diplomas. And they asked him, well, which conservatory did you do? <laughs> he said, I did the conservatory of life. Yeah. And then they were so impressed by that answer that he got the job. And um, so basically, since I think mid-80s till uh, this year, mm-hmm. he has been running the um, jazz department in uh, Musikschool Centrum, yeah. the music school. Yeah, in Amsterdam. And he has taught generations of kids and students about jazz music. And um, a lot of them uh, that didn't pursue a career in music really still love music and, and uh, you know, they can appreciate uh, the, what he gave them. Yeah. And some of them are extraordinary musicians nowadays, mm-hmm. such as Joris Rulofs yeah. and uh, Sanne Huibrechts. Yeah. And um, uh, there are so many. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't want to uh, <laughs> forget <laughs> names, but no, of course. I um, mean, it's it's there are very few people on the scene right now. I mean, I've I've had uh, I remember I had Marika van Dijk on the on the show around the time when uh, when he had just passed, and we were talking about it um, briefly afterwards. She's another person who went through his whole thing. Um, absolutely, I think most yeah. most of the Dutch people that have been featured on this show, if they're of the right generation, they were somehow involved in yeah. one of his youth big bands or one of his programs. Um, yeah. There's a link uh, always towards Peter Guidi, and uh, um, it is really uh, special what he has given to us. And um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's it's important. I think that people um, people should be aware of the legacy that he's left somehow. I mean, I think yeah. most people here are, but um, but he's somebody that that is worth. I mean, he was like he was like a knight of orange, right? For his like he was <laughs> yeah, knighted for. <laughs> I, I, that's, I have to say, yeah. I think that's the first time that I had heard of somebody being a knight because of their like service to jazz music, yeah. so to speak. <laughs> like, a jazz knight. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. pretty cool, right? Uh, it yeah, feels like and, uh, a... Toot Stielemans, when he was alive, he, he was... Uh, they made him a baron in Belgium. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> for yeah. jazz, that's sure. incredible. <laughs> <laughs> it's hilarious, like to, that combination of like very old-school European values and uh, like almost like <laughs> literal monarchy shit. And then... Uh, the the new thing that is jazz, um, yeah. I mean, there's I'm sure there's so much to say about about Peter, but um, I I basically would just encourage people to go check out uh, his legacy. There's obviously a bunch of beautiful records and stuff, and uh, yeah, and uh, and there's a whole community of people out there that that loved him. I think, and there are many stories. I mean, we yeah. we done so much, and what I wrote in the liner notes of the CD is, uh, I I thank Peter for what he has done. But uh, um, basically, I thank him for um, seeing the joy of sharing mm-hmm. because um, I think jazz is, is all about community and sharing and at the same time being an individual. So you have to be a team player and an individual. You have those two ends that yeah. are very important for your development. And also... Um, growing uh, through experience. Mm -hmm. So we have the schools in Holland, we have many conservatories, which is uh, wonderful. You know, there's so much knowledge and great teachers there. So that's one thing. And we study there. But then the actual real life experience of playing and traveling, meeting people and uh, working together, I think that experience is really what Peter... Um, valued and trying to give to many young people. 
Yeah. So take them on tour and make them um, grow. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really special thing, right? Like I feel it's it's a and this is an a, again I'm I'm going to sound like a broken record because I I feel like I say this quite often, but um, that's one of the things that I feel is being lost nowadays quite a lot with um, like the idea of the way jazz used to be learned was that you would obviously practice your ass off and stuff, but then hopefully some older generation musician would notice you and he would call you up and you would maybe go on tour with them or whatever. Like the quintessential example of this is Art Blakey. Like mm -hmm. there's so many greats started off as pretty much teenagers in, in Art Blakey's band yeah. um, and saw the world and then went on to develop their own careers and made incredible music. And that's something you could say the same for Miles. You could say the same mm -hmm. for so many musicians. And yeah. that's a thing that is kind of being lost now to a large extent, right? Like there are still people out there that do that. Um, and it's interesting that you mentioned like uh, the idea of Thomas playing in, in Benjamin Herman's band. Like Definitely. that to me feels like a very direct parallel of that. Absolutely. Um, and Benjamin is one of those people that looks to the new generation to find people that uh, that he wants to pick out. And and I feel like you're also one of those people. Like there are there are musicians out there of the of the older generation um, that are still kind of that old school thing mm -hmm. and that will look to you and call you up. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you have examples of those people. Yeah. Um, and it's very cool. And it's interesting to me that Peter was one of those people that bridged the gap between that approach and at the same time the idea of institutions are just part of the way it is now and mm -hmm. you know the junior jazz college at the conservatory and everything like how do you bring that old school mentality into what is pretty much like an academic yeah thing now right yeah and one of the things that also peter really made me aware of is is not to intellectualize the music too much mm -hmm. Uh, which is what I also was aiming for with this recent recording. Mm. So I'm trying to be m as melodic as possible, and that's why I love to play ballads. I'm not trying to come from a point where I'm looking for sophistication that much, but actually simplicity is very <laughs> sophisticated sometimes. Yeah, definitely. It's kind of a paradox. Yeah. But um, uh, Peter felt that responsibility, and there are many... Uh, there are a few people in Holland, like Erik Ineke, jazz drummer, yeah. or Rijn de Graaf, um, Benjamin uh, Herman, of course, yeah. and uh, more that feel a responsibility towards younger players and the music. So um, it's not all about um, us as the individual, mm -hmm. but also as a community, which I also saw in America. Mm -hmm. um, so when I was those six months on the exchange, which was a great uh, learning opportunity, I saw the same um, responsibility coming from uh, Terrell Stafford, yeah. the trumpet uh, the director. Yeah. And he said to us, go to each other's gigs because support each other so you will keep the gigs. And everybody <laughs> you know, benefits from it. We yeah. have to support each other, and um, which is why I think it's good that a lot of young players now are making their own music, producing it. Yeah. Uh, we're not in a, a luxury situation where a lot of labels are jumping uh, on it and mm -hmm. offering us uh, deals. Yeah. So it has to come from us. But I think maybe that isn't a bad thing. Maybe that's a good thing because we, we have to think more about uh, the artistic process and why we're doing this. 
you have to make choices uh, uh, about the music as well. Is this for commercial or more artistic uh, reasons? All kinds of things you have to think about. Um, but in America, there is definitely an older generation that's also uh, taking responsibility and, and taking younger play players under their wings, as we say. Yeah. Which is beautiful. Yeah. Actually, I mean, you mentioned it really in passing right now um, when we were talking about uh, the choice of repertoire for the record and that you got this chart from from Jimmy Heath, the like, saxophone player. Uh, can, can you speak a bit to that? Like, uh, I don't feel like you can just drop the thing of, hey, I, I got a chart from Jimmy Heath <laughs> in, in a conversation uh, without explaining a bit. Like, how did you get to like meet oh, Jimmy yeah. Heath? What was the, the story there? Because, I mean, yeah. I hope people know who Jimmy Heath is because he's like a massive hero of, of, yeah. of jazz history. He's there. a legend. Yeah. Um, he's now, uh, I, th I believe he's 91 now. Yeah, exactly. Still playing, <laughs> still writing. So there's no end yeah. to music. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's like he used to lead a big band that had Coltrane in the like section. Right? Yes, so like it's, and, and Par Charlie Parker <laughs> was a soloist. Yeah, uh, there's exactly. a photo it's, of that yeah. where he showed me a photo uh, where he's playing with his big band, beginning of the 50s, one of the first bebop big bands, he explained me. And yeah. in the saxophone section is Benny Golson, John Coltrane, <laughs> and there's uh, Jimmy <laughs> conducting the band. Yeah. And Charlie Parker is standing in front as a soloist. Yeah. And if you look at John Coltrane, he has like huge eyes and the ash of a cigarette is burned all the way through. <laughs> He's like with his mouth open yeah. looking at Charlie Parker. No, yeah. but I should uh, mention, um, so I was very fortunate to uh, visit Jimmy Heath at his home in uh, Queens, New York in yeah. uh, 2013 mm -hmm. uh, because I was doing my research about Kenny Dorham, one of the... Um, mysterious jazz trumpet players yeah and um uh, jimmy heath did a workshop in temple university where i could ask him some questions yeah. and then terrell stafford helped me to set up uh, to meet uh, jimmy heath yeah. to visit him mm -hmm. so i spent uh, about three hours at his house yeah. wow where he started talking about jazz and, and showing me photos uh, so uh, Jimmy Heath was uh, in the first band of Miles Davis on yeah. Blue Note. And then he got asked to play lead alto with Dizzy Gillespie's big band. So yeah. he did that. And then Miles needed another tenor player. And Jimmy Heath recommended John Coltrane. Yeah. So thanks to Jimmy Heath, we got we all have, that uh, good music. No, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I mean, his career is just uh, fascinating. Yeah. There's so much knowledge. But, uh, so yeah. what is that like? Like you're in... Uh, like literally in this guy's home like how what what did you get from that like i guess you went there with a bunch of questions about kenny Dorham and stuff yeah. and uh, yeah yeah i had a whole list of questions and uh because there was no biography about uh yeah. kenny Dorham because mm -hmm. he died so early yeah. um so that was the main reason but also to just see his practice rooms and the scores he's working on oh, and yeah. his wife is still mona she's still there and then yeah. you know making tea for you and you really feel uh, this is uh, the closest you can get yeah. to jazz history and, and the legends yeah. Charlie Parker, Coltrane because this, uh, uh, Jimmy Heath was a close friend to all of those people Yeah, yeah. and um, just hearing some marvelous stories, I think jazz is also about stories, personal stories Yeah, sure. um, that's why you have to live um they say the music is a reflection of life. Uh, I believe in that too. Mm -hmm. 
And um, there's a funny thing uh, where where Charlie Parker, he needed the saxophone, of course. <laughs> you know, he always and needed uh, a saxophone, right? He was pouring yeah. his saxophone off every chance he got to, yeah. to buy more drugs. No, I mean, so <laughs> Jimmy Jimmy uh, borrowed him uh, maybe his saxophone or or his mouth. Yeah, he borrowed his saxophone to Charlie Parker. Yeah. But Charlie Parker left his mouthpiece on the saxophone when he oh. gave it back to Jimmy. Yeah. And he forgot about it. So Jimmy immediately ran home to try it out and and, <laughs> and see if he sounded like Parker. And he said, like, man, I was as sad as a baby's funeral. <laughs> I didn't sound like Parker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, uh, they used to call him Little Bird because he's he's like a really small man. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, he yeah. used to be uh, copying Charlie yeah, Parker. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's funny. It, yeah, like the, all these cool stories somehow. Yeah, it's very cool. Uh, can you speak a bit about Kenny Dorham? Like, it's uh, yeah. it, it's obviously you did some actual research into him, and like you say, there's no official biography out there or anything. So, yeah. I feel like he's a really underappreciated figure. And uh, and now that I have somebody who actually knows <laughs> and can tell me about him, uh, maybe it's interesting for folks to to hear a bit about that guy. Yeah, there's a interesting um, introduction by Art Blakey on the Blue Notes recording where he says the uncrowned king. Kenny Dorham. Yeah. Then you hear that, you think, well, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uncrowned king. It means Kenny Dorham had a actually big impact on jazz and the scene. Yeah. So I went to look along the timeline. Um, when did he move to New York? What did he do with who did he live? He, he was a roommate of Fats Navarro. Okay, yeah. If you hear early recordings of uh, 1946 with uh, Sonny Stitt, you hear Kenny Dorham is like exact copy of Fats Navarro. It's like amazing. You're like, yeah. whoa, he didn't find his style yet, his voice. Mm-hmm. And then two years later, when he was in Paris with Charlie Parker, they made a recording on Vogue. And Parker couldn't do the recording sessions, excuse me, <clears throat> and um, because of a contractual reasons. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a tour uh, where they played in Paris and uh, Ted Dameron Quintet with Miles Davis was there. All kinds of great American bands were there, mm-hmm. including Charlie Parker Quintet. So they had James Moody on the recording yeah. and they released it as Max Rhodes Quintet. Yeah. So Parker isn't there. And suddenly I was hearing all this influence, harmonic influence of Charlie Parker in Kenny Dorham's playing. I was like, wow, this is interesting because on the recording with Parker himself, Kenny Dorham doesn't do that. Yeah. Maybe that's his respect yeah. to, towards... Um, yeah, yeah. But I wanted to see where's the shift? Where do you see him finding his voice and how did that influence the jazz scene? So he's a similar... He's from a similar generation like Miles Davis. I think Miles Davis was born in like 1926 mm-hmm. and Kenny Dorham 1924. So a similar generation. And they're both the first two players, in my view, that have this more intimate way of playing. Yeah. Um, whereas more less the, the, the extrovert yeah. trumpetish. It's not the dizzy yeah. thing of like... Yeah. Um, Although in the early years, he was influenced by dizzy and trying to be more virtuoso... But he developed his own voice and his own style on the trumpet, which was unique. Mm-hmm. And Miles too. But Miles got credit always. And yeah. Kenny Dorham not so much. And he, maybe that's also because of his personality. He was more like a modest 
kind of guy. Yeah. Know, that's really... Yeah, you're not going to win in the competition with, with Miles as far as, like, arrogance is concerned. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So um, I think that played a role in, in why he got a bit underrated or, or less yeah. known. But... Um, yeah. And what like so what is there stuff that you can point to in your own music and in your own playing that specifically comes from that research that you did into Kenny Dorham and in, and and obviously his music and his playing? Yeah. Uh, so um I'm not trying to copy his sound because that's your voice on the horn. Yeah, sure. Like you you develop your own sound if if possible. Um but there are some concepts, uh, harmonic concepts and um the way he phrases that I like, mm-hmm. so I'm. I think I put that in my uh, sauce, in my yeah. in my influences. Um, yeah, sure. So I appreciate uh, him so much for that, and um, it's it's interesting. It's, it's, I'm sometimes uh, I write to his daughter still, Yvette Dorham. Okay. Yeah. And um, um, I send her a copy of the research. Um, <laughs> was it was exciting to be close to uh, yeah. a hero like that? No, sure. And so, what was her reaction? To, like, I, um, I guess it's quite an honor, right, to realize that people are still um, still excited about her dad and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for her, it was also, I think, uh, um, like because of his early passing. He was only 48 years old and, and she missed him for a big part of her life. Yeah, of course. So if people are doing research about her father and finding out stories and details and, and sending it to her, I think it it can maybe mean something for her as well. Yeah, of course. As well yeah. as uh, the, the new album, I, I sent a copy to her yeah. because I recorded two compositions of Kenny Dorham. Yeah, yeah, sure. And... Um, yeah, it's my respect to him as well to send her a copy. Yeah. Yeah. No, fair enough. Um so there's a there's a topic that seems kind of obvious at this point that which is something that I do want to touch upon uh with you, which is um the idea of of the place that you have in the jazz tradition and the mm-hmm. and the the clear like um the clear through line, I suppose, that you can see between, like, all the way, going all the way back to people like Kenny Dorham, all the way up to you. Um, I'm interested in how you, what your view is, and I mean, I'm not, this is not like a gotcha question, right? Uh, I'm just interested in, like, how you view the scene and the place that you have in the scene, because Mm -hmm. it, uh, it seems to me like a lot of opportunities are being afforded to people based on playing original music and based on um, a a new thing or whatever, whatever that's supposed to mean, I don't really know. But Mm -hmm. like, if you look at the programming at festivals nowadays that call themselves jazz festivals, typically like you don't hear a lot of the music that is so dear to you. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I wonder what your viewpoint is on that. I'm not asking you to like tell me, yeah, I hate the scene or whatever, because I don't think that's true either. No, no, no. Uh, But I'm interested in like, it requires a certain amount of dedication to to kind of make that decision, I suppose. To like, do you feel like you're cutting yourself off from a certain certain amount of opportunity that might be there? And and I suppose are there opportunities that you're getting that you think you wouldn't get otherwise based on that that kind of aesthetic, that choice of being so anchored in the tradition? I mm-hmm. suppose. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah, I mean, it's maybe good to point out that I am trying to develop myself as versatile as possible as a musician. So uh, examples of that are, for instance, um, uh, with Bernard van Rossum, the, yeah. the great uh, flamenco um, arranger. Yeah, and, he's and been on the show talking about that. Uh, yeah. yeah, and he has a marvelous flamenco big band, which I'm fortunate to be part of. Yeah. So we're playing with a smaller version of that band in the Flamenco Biennale in the beginning of uh, coming year. Okay, yeah. Um, that's a project I find so exciting, and that's not, you know, that's not straight at jazz music. No, of course. As well as uh, subbing in the band Son Swaga or uh, playing soul or, or pop music sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoy doing uh, various things, but when it comes to my own projects, uh, you can say that's that's really in line with jazz tradition, mm-hmm. um, and you do get the stamp of of being a, a bebop player. But I don't mind that so much because I think there's some really marvelous music in the past. So to be associated with that, no, of course, I find it um, actually uh, uh, honorful. Mm-hmm. So, um, um, but I think people that play with me or, or see what I'm doing, they see that I'm not all focused on uh, one type of music. Mm. Uh, I, view it, I view it as music. So I don't try to think too much in, in genre, but I do like to have this um, certain elements that are part of jazz in the, in the tradition that I really like. Yeah. So that's um, what I'm trying to do in my own projects and... and but that's also flexible in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, having ideas for for different types of uh, music in the future. Yeah. Um, but for now, this is what I'm viewing, and yeah. um, I'm I'm interested. Yeah. That, I mean, this is a really like pragmatic and practical point to make. But I'm uh, I I'm interested in what the performance spaces and performance opportunities are for the kind of music that's on this new record. Mm-hmm. Um, is that a completely like different scene? I mean, you see once in a while you will have, obviously there are venues that are going to feature both crazy strange free music and mm-hmm. like super down to earth traditional stuff and everything in between and weird like new groove stuff and all these things. But um, mm-hmm. what is the circuit like for you? Like what, what, and I suppose, Maybe a similar and maybe more interesting question to that is, what is the ideal place for you to play this kind of music? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's that's hard in Holland nowadays. Uh, I feel that a lot of people judge you as uh, being less um, mm, less original. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I don't agree on that because all the players on this recording were shaping our voices on the instrument. It's our own sound, our own ideas. And we picked some really extraordinary songs. Um, so uh, the, the appreciation and the possibilities are actually abroad. So yeah. not in Holland. So okay. I've found I've found a lot of um, uh, yeah. There's a lot of room for that in in Japan. Yeah, that's so, true. Actually, uh, yeah. I go there once a year to play, mm-hmm. and um, I feel that people really appreciate what's happening and what we're making. So um, that's, that's interesting. That's very nice. Yeah. The the I suppose that is a thing 
that dates back again. I mean, going back to Art Blakey again, but that dates back to the time. I remember there's this whole story about how the jazz messengers first went to Japan and yeah. they kind of stepped off the airplane and they were treated like kings and <laughs> they're like considered celebrities over there. And like, we're just jazz musicians. This is really strange, like more, more so than they would have it anywhere else. Yeah. Um, and it's funny that that is something that's continued. Is that like, what do you think it is about like the Japanese sensibility that resonates so much with with the type of music that you make? Do you have a viewpoint on that? Um, well, they see that I'm making this music for the music. So mm -hmm. I'm not making it from a commercial point of view or trying to be um, a renewing. I think that every musician in its own way is, is, is unique, but they appreciate me for that. Mm -hmm. They appreciate that I follow my own vision, although that's maybe not a popular vision in Holland. Um, and um, so there's room for that in Japan. And they, they really, um, there's, I think for every scene, there's a fans in Japan. Yeah, that's and, probably uh, true, actually, yeah. right? There's also a lot of exciting, like, noise uh, music happening there and, ex and, like, weird underground scenes of... Um, electronica and all that kind of stuff. So it's, yeah, it's cool. So if you if you do what you believe in, they appreciate that. Okay, yeah. So it's more about that. Mm -hmm. And uh, instead of trying to make something which you think would work uh, somewhere, yeah, there's nothing I'm, cynical no, about it. Yeah, no, I'm 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 taking care, trying to take care of the music that I'm feeling and uh, envisioning. And uh, whatever style that may be, mm -hmm. I don't um, think about that, but I think about, you know, yeah, sure, what you're hearing. But so, what does it look like when you go to Japan? Are you playing with like local uh, musicians? Is it? Are you? Have you brought your band over there? Like, how how does that worked out? Yeah, so um, I haven't went there with my own band. I go as a soloist. Yeah, and uh, I'm going back in March uh, to play mm -hmm. a, a tour. Okay, and. Um, so basically, I'll, I'll bring all the charts. Um, I'm writing um, septet arrangements for uh, two gigs in uh, Kobe that's next to Osaka. Oh, yeah. uh, so uh, I think for next tour, there's going to be five different bands. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, uh, But with very good players, uh, yeah. which is very exciting. Um, there are really marvelous players there, which we don't know so much about here in the West, but yeah. there are extraordinary players there. Mm -hmm. And... Um, so I'm bringing the charts and I can um, write arrangements and mm -hmm. uh, like that, um, it's really nice to go there and, uh, and play. Um, but eventually I want to go over with my band. Yeah, you know, that's, sure. my, that's one of my goals, to, mm -hmm. to go with the whole band, either the, the sextet I have or the quartet yeah. and, uh, and play. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was going to say that that again feels like kind of an old school Thing that I, I don't know if that's an old school thing, but it feels like an old school thing to kind of be the the traveling musician who will play with the rhythm section that is yeah. there, right? Like I feel like uh -huh. it used to be the case that like Charlie Parker would literally just travel around with a mouthpiece and find a rhythm section and a saxophone wherever yeah. he showed up. Yeah. Uh, and that that again is kind of a dying art, I suppose, of the idea of just a different rhythm section every night kind of thing. And yeah. um, how... How easy is that for you? I find that I, I I think I would find that really difficult to be playing. It's obviously inspiring, I guess, to play with completely new people all the time. But yeah. like, um, do you not have kind of a sense of 
maybe I should figure out who the people in Japan are that I actually want to work with and just like form a, a, a band there or like is that oh definitely yeah. so I mean it's very important to know beforehand who you're playing with and uh, what's their um, um, their their strengths yeah so last time I had a wonderful sextet with you know the they are the first calls in Tokyo Okay. So they're uh, extraordinary players. Um, um, so I brought the sextet arrangements and I knew with one rehearsal, we had one rehearsal of one hour or one and a half hour, and then we had a show of two times an hour. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I knew it's, it would work because they're just fantastic musicians. Yeah. So beforehand, I want to know if I can work fast. Yeah. So either one sound check or even without a sound check, I did that too. I had a duo concert in Tokyo with a pianist. He's really great. Uh, and and um, so then th you don't know what's going to happen. But if you check her out and you think like, well, she's a very good player and uh, I'll send her the set list and yeah. uh, it should be okay. Um, so yeah, like that. That, yeah. that requires a serious amount of faith, right? <laughs> like oh, yeah. it's, a, it's a leap of faith yeah. to just cross the planet to go somewhere to play with people you don't know and assume that it's going to work right yeah and that can be very uh <laughs> that's there's no safety in jazz i in, in, i think so we, you could say we find safety and no safety <laughs> yeah um i mean that can go wrong too you know if you play in in the body and soul jazz club and people paid to see you play yeah. i mean they paid tickets and they're having a drink and they expect a great concert, mm -hmm. but you just came there and you just came off the plane and, <laughs> yeah, you, and you jet that, lagged. It has to happen, <laughs> you know, that's very demanding. But then, funny enough, it always does because your, your adrenaline is rushing and you're like yeah. so focused yeah. that, um, yeah. Maybe this yeah. is a silly question. Uh, it, just come, it just comes to mind, but... Um, if you if you feel like there's a somewhat of a lack of opportunity for you in Holland versus somewhere else, I mean, not that there's a lack of opportunity because you're obviously doing really well and playing with a lot of people, but like, is there a, is there any part of you that thinks that you might move away from Holland at some point? Is there anything that attracts you to go um, on a more permanent basis, or is it are you just like at home here and this is just how it is? Um. I'm actually very open to that because yeah. I think nowadays, um, well, it really depends of what you want as a musician, but uh, I feel that if you want to play jazz, um, like in the tradition, mm -hmm. you have to travel a lot. Yeah. Um, if you want to play more styles, which I'm also trying, uh, you know, what I'm doing now as well, uh, there is no problem with living here. Yeah, sure. So I could either stay here or, or move in the future. I, I really don't know. That's really open. Yeah. Um, okay. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that answered the question. No, sure, it um, does. I mean, it's just it, it just came to mind. It's interesting that uh, that's the thing. It makes sense to me that even if you did move, you would still actually end up having to travel a lot if you're going to do what, what you want, what you mean to do. Yeah. And also the point that you make about if you're... 
interested in and willing to play all the different styles that are available to us here, mm-hmm. then actually there's enough work to just, yeah. you know, you yeah. don't even have to leave the, the outskirts of Amsterdam to I do. I mean, there are, there are extraordinary players in, in Amsterdam and the Netherlands. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a very, uh, how can you say it, fruitful um, yeah. environment because mm-hmm. um, also it's, it's competitive, which yeah. I think is good for the music. Yeah, definitely. Um, we we've had some um, we can say heavy weather when it comes to uh, playing opportunities because clubs closed down and sure. orchestras disappeared. Yeah. So the the governmental actions had this impact and still are having its uh, impact. Yeah, for sure. Even the cut in subsidy is just uh, yeah, it's been brutal. Yeah. So <laughs> even though we're out of the recessions and there's economic growth. The impact of the cuts that have been made after, uh, I believe, 2009 are still working uh, working on. Mm -hmm. So for us, that's been uh, hard to deal with as a a scene, I think. Um, Yeah, and we're still living under pretty much the same government, so it's not like you could expect change in that sense. But who knows? Um, There there may be hope for that. so I think that also has a big uh, influence on, on us as musicians. So the, the, the government's perspective on the value of art, of the arts. Yeah, sure. So in Germany, that's different. There's yeah. more appreciation from the government. They, they, f- they value the arts more yeah. than in Holland. Um, and that's in Japan too. Yeah, sure. So that influences... Uh, for people, I think, to, to either uh, work here or not. Mm. I know many musicians uh, across the borders. They go to Germany to play some gigs yeah, of course. every yeah. month. Yeah, yeah. No, and I think uh, that also has to do with the established culture uh, wherever you are. Because uh, similarly, like if you look at the way the model works in the States, there's next to no like government subsidy uh, in terms of like arts, yeah. support for the arts. But that has been, and even less so under the current um, government, but the the fact is that has been going on for long enough that they have built a system where um, basically getting private investors and uh, getting uh, donation systems and all these galas and all these kinds of things. That's like a thing. I mean, you look at like the, the Monk Institute, like the newly renamed Herbie Hancock Institute, um, that's also how they function, right? They, but mm-hmm. because there's yeah. a system in place, uh, it it also kind of works. Whereas in Holland, I feel like that switch that happened where, like, we're going to cut the subsidies and now you can look at the way they do it in America to get mm-hmm. private, get bankers to give you money. Uh, that just doesn't, that doesn't work on such a short no. notice, right? <laughs> no, because there are not that many... Uh, yeah, like individuals who are funding projects. For sure. And also, it basically just means that the opera houses and the largest possible things receive all of that donation money because they're the most obvious target. And then a small jazz club in the middle of nowhere in, in Holland will not so easily get to reach that kind of sponsorship. Yeah. But also, it's, not all, um, it's also about... The um, symbolically, so even if as a government you don't fund so many things, so there's not that much uh, budget, Mm -hmm. but what attitude do you have towards art? Yeah, because people are uh, looking up to a government, so 
even if you don't uh, fund so much, if you make uh, if you make a statement that you do support art and you do value arts, yeah, I think that's for um, uh, companies for for people in the in the country uh, good to see. Yeah, good to see that the government does support arts and doesn't. Uh, describe it as a links hobby or, or, or something exactly. Like I was going to say that's the exact uh, uh, word. A, a, a left wing hobby yeah. uh, is how our <laughs> entire profession has been described about yeah. by our wonderful government. But yeah, uh, that might be besides the point. Uh, is there any stuff that we? I mean, obviously we've we've talked about a lot of things. Is there any other projects, any other stuff as a sideman that you're up to that you haven't mentioned, or anything that you want to point out specifically? Um. um well, I'm, I think I'm, I mentioned that there's going to be the Flamenco Biennale. Yeah. Uh, so we're playing there with Bernard uh, at the end of January, beginning of uh, okay, February, cool. yeah. in the Bimhuis and the Tivoli Vredenburg. Yeah. So that's going to be uh, very nice. There are going to yeah. be uh, Spanish musicians coming over uh, to join us mm-hmm. and uh, some new music. Okay. So I'm excited to share that. Um, yeah, cool. Yeah. Uh, finally, um, I, I always like to end my conversations by asking my guests if there is something that you would like to recommend uh, that the uh, listeners check out. It can be just about anything, something that you find particularly inspiring. It can be a book, a movie, uh, some, like, yeah, whatever comes up, uh, comes to mind. Um, yeah, what comes to mind for me is um, a Krishnamurti, mm-hmm. which is, um, it was a man... Uh, you can find him on uh, his YouTube. Well, there's a YouTube channel about uh, videos of lectures he gives, and he wrote books. Yeah. And um, he had a big impact on me this year as I was uh, confronted with uh, the death of two people that were close to me. It was yeah. my uncle, uh, Bart Vlaanderen, and uh, Peter Guidi, yeah. my friend and mentor. Mm-hmm. So reading um, literature by uh, Krishnamurti about life and death, about love, it uh, had a big impact on me. And um, I think it might do for other people too. Yeah, it, sure. it might be insp- an inspiration. So, yeah. Uh, no, great. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm sure there's a, there's a ton of resources uh, as far as uh, Krishnamurti's... Uh, uh, work is concerned. Like, what is it? I mean, uh, I don't know if we have to dig into this, but like, what um, is that? That kind of sense of spirituality is that something that was always present for you, or is it like you say it became important to you this year in in confronting some difficult times? But yeah, uh, have you always been like attracted by that kind of thing, or like how? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm. I I've been reading. Uh, Lots of literature, uh, Eckhart Tolle, for instance. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. I like A New Earth. Yeah. Um, I've been reading the Bhagavad Gita, which is a Hindu spiritual text, yeah. which is more a poetic way of yeah. uh, their spiritual um, uh, messages, mm-hmm. uh, which is maybe less uh, popular in the West, Yeah. this poetic form. Um, so... Um, I'm reading it because I feel it enriches uh, the music as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like there's a that's a fairly common. I mean, to to go as uh, like Krishnamurti is maybe one step further than a lot of musicians I've spoken to would go. But I feel like the idea of like mindfulness and a certain amount of of spiritual practice and specifically a certain amount of 
like things that have their roots in Buddhism, for example. Like that's quite a common thing in the jazz scene, uh, especially now. Maybe it became a thing. Yeah. Uh, already in the 60s or 70s i'm not sure like i feel like maybe some of the late explorations of coltrane were already in that mm -hmm. direction yeah um no it's interesting i don't know if the, yeah I'm, I'm not sure that what i'm saying is actually uh constructive but. well no but it's it's logical because a lot of the music from the past was made from a spiritual point of view mm -hmm. coltrane or, or Cannibal Adderley, for instance, they, they came from the Baptist church. Yeah, sure. Classical music, Bach, it was written for service. Yeah. It was written from a, a view of a point of view which is above the self, for something bitter, bigger than the individual. Yeah. And to serve that. Mm. So nowadays, basically, as you know, the young generations, we have pretty much rejected religion. Mm. Um, but what has come in place? So I feel that uh, when a lot of musicians are, are looking for sources and they find uh, that Buddhism opens their mind and it, it makes them uh, see the music as, as well different, as, as well as the role of music yeah. in the world, uh, that's a beautiful thing. And yeah. uh, it maybe fills that gap where, as before, religion or, uh, was the, the spirituality from which people played. Yeah. Yeah. No, cool. Um, I think that's a beautiful way to uh, end this conversation. Guidon, uh, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Pat. Hopefully uh, I will have you back if and when you've got more things to talk about. Thank you. And that was my conversation with Guidon Nesvas. Many thanks to my fellow members of Catero for providing the intro and outro music. Please subscribe to the show wherever you like to get your podcasts. That could be Stitcher, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, slash iTunes, whichever app you prefer to use. And while you're there, leave a favorable review or rating. That is really very helpful to me. If you know anybody who might be interested in listening to this kind of content, please do let them know. Word of mouth is a very helpful way for me to grow the audience for this show. Go to patreon.com slash sound of the moment if you'd like to make a donation to help me keep the show up and running. Even the smallest amount is really helpful, and you can do that either on a monthly basis or simply as a one-off donation. Many thanks to those of you who already do that. You can reach me on Twitter at Pat Cleaver. You can like the Sound of the Moment page on Facebook, and you can find me at pat at soundofthemoment.com. I'll end with more music from Guidon and his quartet. This is Lazy Afternoon. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Sound of the Moment.